The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 through 15. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with every everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled this is the word of the lord good morning everyone it's good to be with you all again i hope you're doing well and resting in the rock that is christ if you're new welcome to risen I'm Pastor Rich, one of the pastors here at our church, and I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Um, right now, we're in a sermon series going through our 2021 vision, which is Cultivate. And if you've missed any of our sermons, you can listen to them on Spotify, on the go. But today's theme is Cultivating Grace. And the word grace is not a new word, uh, sorry, not a new word to us. It's quite familiar, but that can also be a problem. You see, we live in a culture where everyone is interested in the newest and the latest idea and product or change. So when you're using a word that has been around a long time and has been talked about frequently, people tend to yawn. The word grace is so common, it just doesn't feel amazing anymore. It's like the Golden State Warriors in 2018. They were so great all the time Sometimes you took it for granted and you just didn't watch the games even though they were truly amazing. And now we're just living in the past, watching the old highlights. But the difference between the Golden State Warriors and the grace of God is that we don't have to live in the past and watch old highlights of God's grace as if that is out of reach for us now. God's grace is unwaveringly and powerfully the same in the past and present and the future. It doesn't expire. It doesn't rust. It doesn't lose its power or its validity. And when you read Paul's letters to all the different churches that he writes to, they always all go back to the grace of God. He never ends up anywhere else. And friends, it's because God's grace is always the answer and solution to our sin, to our brokenness, to our discontentment and hopelessness. We only have to remember it, to not take it for granted, to dwell upon it and believe it and to fall upon it and live out of it again like a tree planted by living waters. So this is what we're going to do today, friends. We're going to dive into the deep end of grace. So here are two points for today. One, we're going to take a look at grace explained, and then two, grace applied. You know, if you look up the word grace in the dictionary, its definition is pretty general. It'll read favor and kindness. For example, the bank gives us a grace period or the leader falls from grace. 
or the dancer moves with grace. But is that a sufficient explanation of what grace really is? Is that what it really means? And therefore, do we really understand what grace is? Author Kyle Eidelman, he writes in his book, Grace is Greater, this. We've settled for wimpy grace. But the word grace, according to scripture, has a powerful force about it, an untamability about it. It calms devastating storms, brings religious and irreligious people together, changes fishermen, lawyers, tax collectors, and businessmen into preachers, makes enemies into friends, cracks open our chests, removes our heart pricked with pride and pain, and replaces it with God's own heart. Now, to be fair, uh, the meaning of favor and kindness is intended at times in the Bible when the Bible uses the word grace. For example, when Esther finds favor from King Artaxerxes above all the women in the court and is chosen as his wife, or when Daniel finds favor or grace from God and is put in place as one of King Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted advisors. However, in Scripture, the greatest grace, the greatest act of God's favor is found in the person, life, and work of Jesus Christ. But why is this? What is so significant about the person and the life and the work of Jesus Christ and how it magnifies and beautifies this word grace? Well, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Paul says in Romans 3 that we are given grace because of sin. But what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to sin and fall short of the glory of God? You know, sin is such an outdated word, isn't it? We don't use it really anymore. To believe in sin is to be narrow-minded and backwards and a bigot, right? We can be misguided and have differing opinions, but sin just seems too strong of a word. Well, I'd like to read a quote by Andrew Del Banco, uh, who is a prestigious history professor and was awarded the National Humanities Medal by past president of the United States. And Del Banco makes a great insight into the inherent morality that seems to be embedded in the very nature of the universe and our human nature. This is what he writes in his book, The Death of Sin. With the Enlightenment's influence on human reason and scientific advancement, we can think God is archaic and the Bible is behind the times. But disbelieving in the Bible has resulted in understanding human evil solely through psychological distress or social conditioning. While these factors do play into human actions, this doesn't always hold true. Though helpful, these insights do not alone serve to be a sufficient explanation for suffering. Therefore, there must be room to consider a more comprehensive way of understanding 
immoral causality. Friends, what Del Banco is saying is having displaced a divine creator, not only of the material universe, but over the moral and spiritual universe, we do not have the tools sufficient enough to comprehend and to deal with conflict, differences, suffering, and evil. Frederick Nietzsche, in his book of death, uh, sorry, in his book *The Death of God*, he says we have replaced God with many mini gods in ourselves. So it's not that we don't believe in sin; we all want to believe in our own version of it. Max Lucado, in his book *Grace*, he does a great job of explaining what this looks like. And he does this by sharing the story of Luke chapter 19. Luke 19 is a story that Jesus tells his audience to explain how they've sinned against God and how they need the grace of God. This is what it says. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. The nobleman in this story is, of course, Jesus, and the citizens are us. And Lucado says, according to Luke chapter 19, sin is to say, God, I don't want you to be my king. I'm going to be the king of my life. Therefore, friends, sin is not just a regrettable lapse. It's not just an occasional stumble. Sin stages a coup against God's kingship and authority. It demands the final say. Imagine if someone did this to you. right? Suppose you go on a trip and you leave your household to a manager. Um, but while you're away, this person moves into your house and claims it for himself, uh, engraves his name on your mailbox, places his name on your accounts, poses as you, acts like you. He claims your authority and sends you this message. Don't bother coming back. I'm running things now. Friends, this is us with God all the time. And I know when we listen to a sermon like this, it's very tempting to not want to think about the ways we try to be king in our lives. You know, it can be shameful to think about our mistakes and our regrets, about how controlling we can be, how stubborn or selfish or emotional and angry we can get how far we can fall away from the loving and wise and flourishing rule of Christ. You might even be thinking, I thought this was supposed to be a sermon about grace. <laughs> what happened? I was looking forward to this sermon. But the reason why I'm taking some time here to explore and to dive into the deep end and, and, and examine the concept of sin the reality of sin is because as a pastor, I feel like this is one of the hardest things, one of the most difficult things for us to own. 
But at the same time, one of the most crucial biblical concepts to grasp in order to know what it means to be a Christian and to truly experience and to live in and live out of the real and powerful grace of Christ. I'll speak even for myself. I find that in my relationships, and especially with those closest to me, one of the hardest things for me to do is to admit that I'm wrong, that I've sinned, that I am a sinner. I'll always try to justify my actions and my emotions with logic and reason. I'll give reasons for why I did this or why I said that. I'll blame shift, I'll deny, I'll minimize. And while you know trying to understand each other is necessary at times, Jen and I, we're always doing better. We're always more unified. We're always more appreciative of each other when, he, when we stop trying to spin our actions and we own up on our own part. Risen, this is the secret to any relationship. It's forgiveness. But this is truly easier said than done. Uh, this is not something that Jen and I typically run to immediately, you know? And no one ever wants to go first. Whether it's pride or shame or fear of condemnation, though it is logical to forgive, and I'll sort of show why it is in a little bit, and it's psychologically and emotionally and mentally healthier, our hearts find it so difficult to forgive. I'm reminded of the first Star Trek movie, uh, sorry, the remake by J.J. Abram. And the, at the end of the movie, Captain Kirk and Spock are in a position to take out their enemy, Nero, who is the chief commander of the Romulus race. Previously, the Romulans had destroyed Spock's entire race, actually. They committed genocide against the Vulcans. They killed Spock's mother and father right in front of his very own eyes. But now Kirk and Spock finally have the Romulans at their mercy. And there's this one scene where Captain Kirk says to Nero, your ship is compromised to survive without assistance, which we are willing to provide. And then Spock turns to Captain Kirk and he says, Captain, what are you doing? And then Kirk says to Spock, Spock, I'm showing them compassion. It may be the only way to achieve peace with the Romulans. It's logic, Spock. I thought you'd like it. And then Spock says to Kirk, no, not really, not this time. You see, Spock could have made peace with his enemies, the Romulans. It was even the logical thing to do. But being as logical as he is, Spock's love was not big enough. He could not forgive them. There was still tremendous anger and hatred and bitterness and resentment. And I love this scene because it's really a picture of all of us, isn't it? We love to tout our logic and reason in our discussions. 
But when it comes to grace and forgiveness, for some reason, we cannot seem to do the logical thing. Like Spock, there's anger and bitterness and resentment. And our hearts are not big enough to forgive. But friends, Jesus is not only logical, his love is big enough to forgive us, to continually forgive us, and to restore us and to reconcile us to him continually and to renew our lives with his mercy and grace. Now, if you're new to Christianity, maybe at this point you're, you're thinking, I still don't understand why Jesus has to die for our sins. Once again, that sounds a little too extreme. But this concept of proportional justice, and I'll explain that in a little moment, is not actually that foreign. You see, if you lie to me, <clears throat> I can't do anything. I have no power. I have no authority. But if you lie to a police officer, you'll be charged with a misdemeanor or a felon, dep depending on how big that lie was or how severe. If you lie to a judge in court, you'll be charged with perjury. In other words, the higher the authority the crime is committed against, the greater the consequence. In the same way, this is why when we disregard God, who is the authority of all authorities, he is the creator of the universe, he is sinless, he is perfect, he sees all and knows all, it takes a tremendous amount of grace to make things right. And when we see Jesus taking the consequences of our rebellion upon his shoulders, dying on the cross for our coup against God every single day, when we believe in that and we trust that Jesus has resurrected from the grave to give our hearts spiritual new life, friends, you will be humbled that this perfect and holy God-man will not only think of you and consider you but suffer and do all this for you. Friends, this is what grace is. It's the withholding of judgment and retaliation. And so forgiveness then is always sacrificial. Grace and forgiveness always demands a personal sacrifice a withholding of payback. And this is what God does for us in Jesus Christ. This is what our passage is talking about when it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This amazing grace we have in Jesus Christ. So that's our first point, grace explained. Let's go to the next point, grace applied. The writer of Hebrews tells his church Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. What he's doing here is he's using athletic imagery to depict someone with, with weak legs and hands at the side as a metaphor for lacking spiritual motivation in life. It's a picture of discouragement and abdication. While the imagery of strong legs and ready hands are a sign of determination and motivation to get back into the race, to press on with resilience. Verse 14 says, the spiritual motivation is necessary to strive for peace with everyone and for personal holiness, right? Striving for peace with everyone and personal character are really two important things, but, but really also difficult things, aren't they? So if we were to break this down, it looks like this. Striving for peace with everyone requires the spiritual motivation to love others in relationship, and striving for personal holiness requires the spiritual motivation to conduct ourselves with character. If we want peace with others, and if we want to grow in our character, we need spiritual motivation. But how do we get this kind of spiritual motivation? Where do we get that strength and determination and resilience? Well, first, what's interesting is that the writer of Hebrews, he's not a cynic. He, he does not get overwhelmed by the challenges. He doesn't say, why even bother? What is, is what is. It's futile. It's hopeless. Because that would really nullify the victory of the cross over sin. It would nullify the resurrection over death. It would be soul-crushing. But he doesn't say, try harder either, right? He doesn't say, you just got to try harder. Because that would misunderstand the nature of spiritual motivation in our lives. And lastly, he doesn't blame shift to say the other person is the problem or the circumstances are the problem because that is rarely always the case. Instead, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now what that means is that the gospel is the answer. So the gospel is not just the answer to salvation. The gospel is also the answer to spiritual motivation. Spiritual motivation to strive for peace with others. Spiritual motivation to grow in our character, which Bible scholars call sanctification. You get saved by the gospel. You also grow by the gospel. The gospel is not just the ABCs to the Christian life. It is the A2Zs of the Christian life. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, church, reflect and think about all that Christ has done for you and live out of that. That's where we will find a power greater than ourselves. And at the end of our passage today, in verse 15, he 
drops this strange line. It almost seems out of place. He says, if you fail to see the grace of God, if you miss it, a root of bitterness will spring up and cause you trouble. What does that mean? Well, I think that looking at Matthew 18 will help us understand what that means. In Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus with a question. He asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter doesn't know this probably, but what he is doing is he is challenging the limits of grace. Essentially, he's asking Jesus, is grace greater than an offense that has been repeated over and over and over? Is grace always greater? And Peter guesses at the answer, seven, seven times of forgiveness. He probably thinks he's being very gracious because Jewish rabbis taught that you should forgive someone three times. The fourth time, you didn't have to forgive them. So when Peter throws out the number seven, uh, he's maybe expecting Jesus to commend him as his star people. You know, Peter, why can't all the disciples be like you? Seven times? That's so gracious. Who knows what spurred this question for Peter? Maybe there's someone in his life that has sort of been a thorn in his side and this person has hurt him not once, not twice, not three times, but maybe seven times. Peter's had enough. And what Peter is doing here is he is seeking to put a limit on grace. He's failing to what our passage tells us today. He's failing to obtain the grace of God here because his question is coming from a place of bitterness and resentment. Risen, maybe for you it's not the number of times, but rather the degree of the offense. Maybe the person only hurt you one time, but the pain was times seven, or even the pain was to the seventh power. You struggle with anger and bitterness, fear and mistrust, shame and emotional distress and a profound sense of brokenness. The abuse or the abandonment was too painful. And as much as you want the remaining infection of anger and bitterness gone, it just doesn't feel like forgiveness is possible. Maybe Peter's question is one you would like to ask too. Jesus, how far is too far? How much is too much? When is the hurt that has been done to me greater than the grace you want to give me? When does grace run out? And your equation maybe looks something like this. In 
memories. And I want to tell you that first you have permission from the Word of God to be angry and to grieve and to feel deep distress and to desire justice. The Bible is clear on that. You can also know that God is tied very closely to your suffering. As the true and just King, God grieves for you and with you. He does not delight in injustice. And God does desire justice here on earth. <clears throat> but unfortunately, that does, not, that does not always come to fruition. But that doesn't mean that justice will not ultimately be paid. Either at the end of days before God or in Christ. That is up to the will of God. And friends, unless this is at the very bottom of our heart, that God will see justice through, we'll never be able to be healed to start the process of forgiveness, of letting go of our bitterness and anger and want to take matters into our own hands. We're never going to be able to live non-violently in the world. Eventually, Jesus answers Peter's question. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven, but it's not that Jesus is saying 77 times or even 490 times. Because the number seven in the Bible represents perfection. It represents recreation and redemption of all brokenness. Therefore, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're missing the point. I'm not just a teacher and advocate for peace. I'm going to change everything. You have to forget everything you know about love and forgiveness. You have to forget everything you know about how you ought to live in this world. You have to scrap the old wineskins, get rid of the legacy code. I'm doing something new. I'm doing something radical. I'm going to recreate and redeem everything like no one has ever done before. In Jesus' answer, he's not telling Peter, you've got to try harder 77 times or 490 times. No. In Jesus' answer, he's trying to overturn Peter. He's trying to recreate a new Peter. He's trying to redeem him from the old Peter. Peter would later see Jesus Christ die for and forgive the very centurion that crucified him the very mob that handed him over to death, the very friends and family 
that pledged loyal to Tian, but didn't end up standing up for him. For the disciples who left him alone to suffer the greatest injustice as the only perfect, sinless, righteous, compassionate, loving person who did not deserve to die. Friends, this Christ is here in our midst. He is with you by the power of the Spirit in your home. He is present on your good days and your bad days and will always vouch for you and defend you and never leave you. This is the amazing reality we find ourselves in. Christ has shown us in Him, even though sometimes we can never imagine it, grace is always greater. And friends, if we see that Jesus' singular focus, His entire life and purpose is wrapped up in His love for us, it will soften us again. He will thaw the root of bitterness in our heart. So our story doesn't end with brokenness. Yes, it can be a part of our story, but it does not have the final word in our story. Redemption does. Resurrection does. So despite the pain, healing can happen. There is hope. But we can't self-heal, self-love, self-help. Nothing in this world can heal us, redeem us, renew us and restore us, but Jesus. And this happens as we let go of the past, the sins of others, and do not fail to obtain the grace of God, first for ourselves and then for each other. And over time, as we commit to not failing to see the grace of God, no matter what circumstance, to believe, even though it's so hard to believe that God's grace is greater, it will protect us from getting more jaded or more cynical. It will continue to soften us to be more gracious and more forgiving and more hopeful and more redemptive. Friends, this isn't my word. This is God's word. It's his promise that he'll grow us in this. He'll grow us in a life of seeing God's grace in the midst of imperfection. Experiencing his softening, his restoring, keeping us in the race, and pressing us on constantly towards the goal and the prize, which is always the grace of God in Christ for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and uh, when we listen to a sermon, 
on cultivating grace, we wonder, there's probably nothing new here that we can learn. And yet we realize that grace is not logical. It is a power. And it is a power that we do not have within ourselves, but that which we can only attain and access and experience when we are reflecting upon cultivating grace in our lives in Christ. That's why we come here every single week to get fed again. Where shall we go to find the hope of the world, the redemption of the world? For you are doing something new every single moment. And we pray, Father, that you would be able to reveal your powerful and amazing grace to every single one of us today. And that our church would be a church that would never fail to obtain the grace of God. The cross, the empty tomb, is our spiritual motivation to strive for peace and to grow in character. Father, these things are impossible on our own. But we know that God, with God, with you, all things are possible. So we ask that you would accomplish this in our lives. Not because we deserve it, but because we believe in Jesus that you have promised you will achieve this in us. We pray in his name. Amen.